Day to be here. Happy Easter. It's a wonderful day to celebrate and rejoice uh, Easter together as we think on Christ. Uh, would you turn with me to John chapter 20 this morning? John chapter 20. If you're, especially if you're a guest with us, uh, I just want to um, thank you for joining us on Easter and just welcome you to uh, our worship of our Lord and Savior. I'm uh, really glad that you are here. Uh, and so I want to start by asking a question. Do you know what we celebrate on Easter? Do you know why this is such a big deal? I hope that you do, but if you don't, my goal is to impress upon you just how important the thing that we celebrate on Easter is. And we're going to talk about this at length, and I don't think I will do it justice because, as I will argue, this, the resurrection is the most important event in all of human history. On Easter, we celebrate the empty tomb, right? We celebrate, okay, we remember that Jesus died on Good Friday to bear our sins, but that's not it, right? He did not stay in the grave. He rose from the dead and defeated death once and for all. And so if you join us on Good Friday service, we're glad that you did, but now we're going to pick up where we left off. And so if you would read with me John 20, uh, we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 10 with specific emphasis on verses 8 through 9. So this is God's word. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping, in, stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So Easter is a celebration that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, this is not just any other story. Okay? This is not just any simple story that you may hear. This is the most important story. And so let me ask you a question. Maybe try to illustrate a little bit for you. And I know it will fall short, but let me ask you a question. Have you ever read a book or maybe watched a movie uh, in which there was a dramatic twist or a turn that absolutely changed everything about how you view the story? Okay? There are many examples of this, right? Probably the most famous one that we can think of it's in Star Wars, Episode 5, right, The Empire Strikes Back, when Darth Vader reveals that he is actually Luke's father. Okay, I wasn't, you know, I, I, it was spoiled to me. I, I knew that was coming before it came. But for those that were watching it at the time and following this, in the series, that was a big moment. That just changed everything, how, how you view the whole series. Knowing Darth Vader's real identity changed everything, okay, how you view the rest of the story. Now, that's a very, very, very small picture, an illustration of the greater thing that we're going to look at today, because in a more significant way, in a fuller way, Christ's resurrection changes 
not just the moment, that moment in history, it changes all of human history. And so you should view every event in your life through the lens of the empty grave. We will see that the resurrection is the climax, the turning point where all of God's promises that we read today, that we promise, that we sing of, all of God's promises find their fulfillment in the resurrection. All events are affected by this very moment. And so why is this important? Why is that important that we talk about this today? Well, if you do not give the resurrection the importance that it deserves, what you are going to do is give greater importance to other things that do not have that place. Okay? If you remove the resurrection from the great point of importance that it holds, you're going to give that to something else in your life. And so you will live out of order. And this, you will dishonor Christ out of his rightful place of glory. So my goal this morning, and I have really one goal, many little goals that I won't tell you, but my main goal is to exalt the resurrection as the fulfillment of God's purposes, as we will see in Scripture, that everything points to this. And so we're going to be flipping through a lot of Scripture, okay? So get ready. If you want to follow with me, get ready to flip through, but uh, we have most of the Scriptures up there on the screen, too, so you can follow. Um, so we're going to look, again, here at verses 8 through 9, and here what I want you to see is verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. We will see how all Scripture testified that Jesus would rise from the dead. Before that, we need help, right? So let's turn to God in prayer. Most gracious Father, thank you for what you have done. Thank you for Jesus and the power that you displayed on the cross and on the empty tomb. Thank you, Lord, that you did not leave us in our death and in our sins. But Lord, you've done all of this in love for us so that we would be raised with Christ. Father, forgive us for the times in which we are complacent about your word, for when we're complacent, when we think about you. Father, forgive us for the times in which we give other things priority over what you've done for us. And Lord, may we live as people Lord, who trust and who stand upon the fact that you are faithful and that the resurrection is true. Be with us this morning, Father, and help us in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn there in your passage, and the first thing I want you to see in verse 9 for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must, and the emphasis on the must, he must rise from the dead. Okay, the scripture tells that he must rise from the dead. We also see this in Luke 24. So if you'll see Luke 24, um, we'll read 25 to 27. This is Jesus talking to his disciples after his resurrection. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Okay, what have the prophets spoken? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus is revealing that all the prophets are pointing to Christ's glory. All the scriptures are pointing to Jesus. So Jesus, it is necessary, it says. Jesus says that it is necessary that the Christ should suffer and enter into glory. It must happen. It has to happen. Have you ever thought about that? It had to happen. Why? What would be at stake if Jesus had not raised from the dead? Quickly, four things that I want to show you. Four things that would happen if Jesus had not risen from the dead. One, God would not be faithful. Right? God would not have been faithful. If the Christ was not raised, God would not have been true to his promise. 
And so we know it must happen because God is faithful. Number two, Jesus would not be the promised Messiah. Many people, right, had died for good causes. Many people even died for godly causes, looking to God. But the difference is that none of them could overcome death. If Jesus had not risen from the grave, his death and burial would ultimately be incomplete. Okay, we see that in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul tells us that if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And so if Jesus had not raised, his work would not be finished. What else would be true? Death would be the end of all. Death would be the end of us all. Every, ben every benefit and every blessing would end at the moment of our death. We would have absolutely no hope in this life, but in this we would have no hope but in this life alone. And lastly, the Bible would not be true. The Bible would not be true. We cannot trust it. Because as we will see, the Old Testament, there are several scriptures that point and look forward to the resurrection. And so if the resurrection had not taken place, God's word would not be worthy of our trust. But by God's grace, he did raise, right? He did raise. So he must rise from the dead. Secondly, the thing that we're going to spend most of our time in is here. Verse 9 again. For us, yet yeah, they did not understand the scripture. They did not understand the scripture. What is this scripture right, that, um, that is talking, that's being talked about? The scripture that's testified that Christ, we're looking at Christ's resurrection. We have several places in the New Testament where we see that the Old Testament points to this moment, right? We're at John 20 right now. We looked at Luke 24. Looked at me at 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4, and it'll be on the screen. But 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Okay, the scriptures say that Jesus would be raised on the third day. The question then is if we're going to understand this passage and if we're going to be not going to be like the disciples and actually understand it and believe it, is where? Where are we pointing to Christ's resurrection? We'll see that today. We'll look, see how everyone looked forward to that. And so we're going to look at, if time gives us, we have enough time, we're going to look at three passages and two stories. Okay? If, if time's running out, I might breeze through a couple of things. But three passages and two stories. So the first one, if you would turn with me in your Bibles, we'll spend some time there. Psalm 16. Okay, Psalm 16. Go with Psalm 16 with me. And as you turn there, um, I skipped something. As you turn there, I need to make a point that will, I think will help us, and I think will help you in your Bible reading. Um, so put your finger there for a second. And we have to remember something that's very important. Who is the author of Scripture? God. Ultimately, God is the author of Scripture. And so often in Scripture, there is a meaning that is known and understood in that moment of history. But at the same time, because God sees all things and he oversees everything in all of history, he has a greater purpose in, he has a greater purpose in mind. And so as we'll see, every passage and story have a meaning by themselves, but if you put them all together, oftentimes they reveal that there's a greater meaning, a greater picture that is being painted of the big story of the Bible. So as an illustration to help you see this, right, let's think about a big puzzle. You're working on a really big puzzle, and this maybe hopefully will be helpful to you. But 
Think of every puzzle, every piece in this puzzle as a story in Scripture, as a passage in Scripture, right? It has full meaning on its own. We can learn something about God from that piece of Scripture on its own. But then once you put all of those pieces together, they reveal something greater. They reveal that God actually has a more glorious story in mind. And so these pieces, when you put them together, actually reveal Christ and the work that he has done. And so we have the story of the Bible right from the beginning. We have the puzzle of creation. We have the puzzle of creation. We learn about God, the creator. And then we know that sin entered into the world. Death entered into the world. Right? So we have black pieces everywhere. Just a puzzle full of black and black pieces. But yet in the midst of all that punishment and all those consequences, there's a single white piece. Right? And that is the promise that there would be the one who would crush the head of the serpent. And so you have different pieces. You have Adam, you have Moses, you have Abraham, of Israel. You know, all of these are pieces of God's redemptive history that ultimately point us to the better redeemer. And as a quick aside, you have to think of your life in the same way. Your life has meaning on its own because God has given it to you, but do not live your life in isolation to the greater story that God is painting for all of history. And so we'll look at three passages, two stories, Psalm 16. Turn with me there. Uh, we're waiting, right, for the crusher of the head of the serpent, the snake. And at that moment, David shows up, right? So we're still waiting for the one who would defeat sin and death. And we have David. And David was not the snake crusher. One of his descendants would be. And so with that in mind, this is what he writes in verses 8 to 10. He says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Note this. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. So in this passage, David looks to God as his faithful refuge. David's hope is that even in death, God would not abandon him. But as we know, the fact of the matter is that David actually does die. His body does decay. He does experience corruption. And so who is this passage talking about? Who is this referring to? Who is the Holy One? And as we'll see, this is a reference of the coming Messiah. In Psalm 16, we have a prophecy of the greater fulfillment in Jesus, that Christ would not see corruption. And if you don't believe me, then let's look at Acts 2. Acts 2 confirms that this is the case, and it'll be up on your screen. This is Peter preaching, and he says this. This is kind of a lengthy passage, but just hear with me. Acts 2, 22 to 28, and then 29 to 32. And Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, as you yourselves know this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Amen, right? It must happen. For David, okay, hear this, for David says concerning him, Jesus, what does, he, what does David say? I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. 
You will make me full of gladness with your presence, okay? Peter's quoting Psalm 16 word by word, practically, okay? And he's saying David is looking forward to Jesus in this passage. So he continues, Peter says, Brothers, I, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, being there for a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he, David, foresaw and spoke about what? The resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Acts 13, 35, 35 confirms the exact same thing. David looks forward to the resurrection of Christ. And so we will see, as we see, David's hope that God would not abandon him ultimately is rooted in the fact that Jesus would be raised again. Psalm 16 does that. Where else? Turn with me to Hosea chapter 6. And as you turn there, just quickly to give you some context, Hosea the prophet writes about Israel's unfaithfulness and then contrasts it with God's covenant love. So he calls the people, they're, you know, they're rebelling against God, and he tells them, repent, repent, return to the Lord or exile is imminent. And so, again, put a finger, Hosea 6, we're not there yet, but we'll get there. As we look into this, for us to understand, I want you to see another thing. Jesus is the ideal Israel. Okay? Jesus is the ideal Israel. He is Israel's covenant head. There is an aspect of what's called corp corporate solidarity. Okay? He stands with his people in that what is true of the head is also true of the people. Now, this is not, I'm not telling you anything different than what we read in 1 Corinthians when it says that in Adam all die. In Adam all die. What, what is true of Adam is true of those who are found in him. So what is true of Adam is also true of us in the flesh. As we'll see, thankfully, that's not the end. But this matters. This matters because there are times in Scripture where there's a reference to Israel as the people. And Israel, as we know, is unfaithful. But who is the faithful Israel? Jesus. He is the one who fulfills the prophecies. And although the verses are actually talking about Israel, God has in store in a picture a greater and better fulfillment of Israel, which is Christ. Okay, if you want to read, Isaiah 49, 3 does this, but also Hosea 11 does this. Okay, you can turn if you want, but it will be up on the screen. And we'll see this, see this compared with uh, Matthew 2 as well. So Hosea 11, Matthew 2, this is what it says. When, I, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Talking about Israel, but then what does Matthew 2 tells us? And he rose and took the child, so this is Joseph, Jesus' father, and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Okay, so Matthew, we're seeing, back to Hosea, Israel is pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the greater Israel. So knowing that, now we're ready. Turn with me to Hosea 6. We're going to be in verses 1 to 2, and this is what Hosea tells us. Come. Let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. 
that we may live before him. Amen. So in this immediate context, the people of Israel actually look for deliverance. Okay? They actually want physical deliverance. And God does do that. But this, this is, again, it's just a shadow. It's just a picture of the better deliverance that was to come. The Redeemer was coming. And so in a fuller sense, the people can look forward to the Christ, the head of his people, who would himself be torn, he would be struck down, only God could take on that punishment on his own, right? And take on that, and, on, and then after two days, he actually revives. And on the third day, actually raises people up with himself so that they may live before him. So Hosea's prophecy we see is accomplished in the now. Israel re- receives deliverance, but then it's also accomplished in the then. The resurrection is Israel's hope for salvation that only could come at the hand of God's chosen son, the true head of Israel, who was to die and rise again. So that's Hosea 6. That's our second passage. Our third passage is Isaiah 53. So go back 100, 200 pages or so. Um, Isaiah 53. And if you're familiar with Isaiah 53, this is one of the most you know, well-known scriptures about uh, Jesus and one of the prophecies about the Messiah. You know, it's hard not to see that when you read it. It is a wonderful description of how the suffering servant, Jesus, was to suffer for his people. And we know that. Well, I want you to see and notice that the, the suffering and the prophecy doesn't end just in the suffering and the death. He also looks forward to the Messiah and the suffering servant's glory. And so let's read verses 9 to 10. Isaiah says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Okay, notice, the suffering servant dies. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. And again, when you have a chance this week, read all of Isaiah 53. Let let it turn you to Jesus this week. Verse 10, okay, so we see in his death. Yet it was will, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And then what does it say? When his soul makes an offering for guilt, what? He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So we see the plan for God, the definite plan of God was for the suffering servant to die. But even death could not hold him. It could not hold him forever because his days will be prolonged. God accomplishes his purpose through Christ. And so it is he who embodies Isaiah 53 in both his death and his resurrection. Third passage, now we get to the stories. We're going to look at Jonah and we're going to look at Isaac. Two narratives that point as shadows to the resurrection. We're not going to be able to study every story of these stories in detail just because we do not have time. These could probably be standalone sermons on their own. Um, and so if you are interested and you want to read more, I do encourage you to turn and this week read Jonah, the book of Jonah in its entirety. Uh, read Genesis 22 for a fuller picture. But if you would, turn to the book of Jonah with me. What do we know? Jonah was called by God to preach a message of repentance to Nineveh. But he was not a faithful messenger. He was not a faithful prophet. He refused to obey. And as a result, Jonah faced the prospect of death. 
And he got on the boat. He wanted to flee from God's presence. And God's wrath came upon the sea. And Jonah knew the only way for the boat to survive and the people to survive, you have to throw me overboard. He must be thrown overboard. And so the thing is, Jonah's looking to his death here. And we know that because the sailors also know that. I'm in Joel, not Jonah. Um, over here. The sailors, in, look at Jonah 1.14. Okay, when they know, they throw Jonah overboard, they know they're sending him to his death because they cry out. Therefore they call out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They knew that by doing this, this meant Jonah was going to die. But, right, but God, God was gracious. In his mercy, even though Jonah was running away from God, he appointed a fish to swallow up Jonah. And now from the belly of the fish, Jonah cries out to God. And as he prays, we get a picture, right, of Jonah practically crying out from death. We'll see this. In the belly of fish, in this figurative sense, Jonah was crying out from death. So look at chapter 2 there with me. A couple instances which we see like a call, like a picture of Jonah crying out from death. And he says, uh, verse 2, he calls out from the valley of Sheol, right? I'm still on Jonah, sorry. He calls from the valley of Sheol, right? He calls from the deep in verse 3. Verse 5, we see that his life was in the pit. His life was fainting away in verse 6, okay? Jonah is crying out from the pit of darkness, from Sheol, from the deep. But then that's not it, right? He looks forward to his restoration by God's hand in verse 7. Verse 7 tells us, Yet again I shall look upon your temple, right? And then, yet you brought up my life from the pit. And he ends with this. He says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. So Jonah's crying out from death, saying death, God in many ways, in a sense, he is dead. And yet he says, I will look upon your holy temple. You will bring my life from the pit. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And we know then Jonah is also a picture of Jesus. How do I know? Because Jesus tells us the same thing. Matthew 12. I told you we were going to be flipping a lot this morning. Matthew 12, 40 to 41. This is what Jesus says. For as just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Okay, Jonah was not a faithful prophet. Jesus was the faithful prophet. How are they connected? Both prayed in anguish. Right? You think of Jesus praying in anguish at the garden, and both saw life again. Both were messengers chosen by God for a specific purpose, but Christ was the only faithful one who would turn the hearts of many towards righteousness. And just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so Christ spent three days in the grave and rose again on the third day. We know that something greater than Jonah is here. So as you read Jonah, you can't help but think of Jesus and the resurrection. And lastly, let's look to Isaac. Go to the very beginning. In many ways, the story of Scripture begins in many ways with Abraham. Genesis 22 Israel started with him because God chose him and promised him that he would make of him a great nation through Isaac, okay, through Isaac. 
And Abraham believed, and God gave him Isaac as his son. And then where do we get to? We get to the testing. Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2. That's what it says. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Okay, I want you to know a couple of things about this verse because it's just such a wonderful picture of Christ. God calls, Ab- calls Isaac Abraham's only son, right? Only son. Now, is that true? Does Abraham have another son? If you're familiar with the story, he actually does have another son, right? Ishmael. So how can God say, sacrifice your only son? How can that be? Well, it can only be because Isaac is the only son according to the promise. He was going to be the heir to the promise. And so by God telling Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, he was saying, the one that I had promised you, the one through whom all my promises was going to come, sacrifice that one, your only son. And what does God ask him to do? To sacrifice him, right? And so we see, does Abraham, you know, cower in fear? No, Abraham obeys. Abraham obeys. And why does he obey? Does he obey on the basis of his lack of love for Isaac? No, right? It says, whom you love. God knows Abraham's affection for his son, the love of the father for his son. So it's not that. It's Abraham's confidence in God's promise. Just as we spoke about this morning, standing on the promises of God. Abraham did that. He stood on the promise of God. And how? Abraham knew that if God had promised that Isaac would be the heir of the covenant, it was through Isaac that the promises would be true, then Abraham knew that God would somehow have to bring him back to him again. And how do we know this? Okay, let's keep reading. There's a picture there when, you know, they rose. Verse 3 tells us that they went. They rose early. And then verse 5, as they're walking with his men and Isaac, Abraham tells them, said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship, and note this, and come again to you. We will come again to you, okay? See this, like this come is the plural. It's not just like I will come again. We will come again to you. Abraham knows that even though God is telling him to do this, he has full confidence that they will together return back to them again. He knows that Isaac would return, and God will be faithful. And we know Hebrews 11 tells us the same thing. Abraham believed as if he would receive him back from the dead. Look there too, verse 4. What do we see? On the third day, this all takes place on the third day when he sees and he offers up Isaac. And so Abraham actually offered up Isaac on the altar. He was going to be a sacrifice. But God, right, we know if you know the story, we see stop them only. So Abraham does it only to receive him back from the dead. Isaac doesn't actually die because Christ provides a substitute, right? A different sacrifice. And all of this is a wonderful picture of Christ's resurrection. So how are Isaac and Christ connected? Isaac, Abraham's only son, was offered up on the altar just as Jesus, God's only begotten son, was offered up on the cross as a sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice. Isaac obeyed his father to the point of death, submitting himself just as Christ obeyed his father to the point of actually giving up his life. Three, because Isaac returned 
we know that the covenant continues. But because Jesus rose again, we know that God's covenant was actually fulfilled. Isaac returned with his father, just as Christ returned to the father, and now sits at his right hand, full of glory. Something greater than Jonah, something greater than Isaac, is here. And so church, I want you to see, all of the Old Testament is looking forward to this, to Christ's death, but not just his death, his resurrection, his ascension. They know that he would be raised from the dead as the fulfillment of all of his plan for salvation. And so with that, we get to the New Testament, right? We get to the New Testament. We know that Israel is now a nation. They're under the rule of the Roman Empire. They look still, they're looking, who is this snake crusher going to be? And as if the Old Testament was not enough, okay? They have all of this. They did not understand it. As if it was not enough, Jesus himself prophesied that he would die and he would rise again on three different occasions. He promised that this was going to happen. He said that he would rise again three times. And guess what? The disciples heard this. They walked with him and they did not believe. Now, does this sound familiar to you? Can you think of people that would come and hear God's word week and week again and still not believe? This should help you think of yourself. This should help you feel a level of shame that you're not hearing and practicing God's word as the revelation from God. So don't sit here and listen to God's word week after week and stop short of full belief and trust in Christ's promises. Do not be slow of heart to believe everything that the prophets have spoken. Church, the call for you this morning is ultimately to believe, to believe and have faith and live as if this is true of you because it is. Believe that Jesus was raised according to the scriptures, and this changes everything, changes everything about how you should live, right? Because this gospel, this story did not end on Good Friday. Jesus was the promised Davidic king, as we saw, who never saw corruption. Jesus was the head of Israel who was faithful even unto death. Jesus is the suffering servant who suffered on our behalf. He is the greater Jonah who did not waver but turned the hearts of the people to himself. He is the greater Isaac, the only son of God who has submitted himself to the Father. Something greater than all of these is here because Christ did what no one else could. Men died and stayed in the grave, but that was not the case for Jesus. He rose from the dead, and he is the crusher of the serpent, defeating the power of death once and for all, for eternity, fulfilling the scripture, proving God's faithfulness. All right? This is the reason for our celebration, church. This is why we can be excited and rejoice that God has changed us. This is why we can rejoice on Easter and preach God's good news to all peoples. And so, church, rejoice. Okay, be glad today. This is worthy of our celebration. All of history, all of it from the beginning of the, of the Bible, the beginning of the Old Testament, all of it has been pointing to the moment of the resurrection. Will Jesus rise again? Yes, he will. And now that he has, all of history changes. History is never the same after that moment. Everything else changes and should be viewed through that lens. The resurrection now, church, changes how you ought to live. And so as a way of application, as I end this time, let me leave you with one thought, just one quick thought. Jesus rising from the dead gives you purpose, gives you full purpose. You now have reason to live. He rose, why? 
just so you can just be happy and do whatever you want. No, he rose for a greater purpose than that, so you can live for him. Everything in your life has a new min- meaning because of the resurrection. Do not be, live as people who live as if Jesus did not raise from the dead. Do not be like the world. Let your whole life be a testimony that you live as if Christ has defeated death. And so, what does this look like? The mundane things of the world actually have meaning, right? When you remember that Christ rose from the dead and has given you this lot, even the smallest things have great purpose. You can serve God even in the small things. And so you can mother, right? You can mother with joy because Christ rose from the dead. You can train and discipline your children with hope. Why? Because Christ rose from the dead. You can go to work and do the same thing every day. You can have people in your home. All of it because Christ, Christ rose again, and now you can serve him with hope. All of these things have meaning. The lot that God has given you has a purpose. That is the puzzle piece for re- redeeming and showing God's greater glory. And so all of your trials, church, as you think about your life today, all of your trials, all of your relationships, relationships, all of your suffering are changed by Christ's resurrection. All of these things, all of these trials, all these sufferings do serve a greater purpose to exalt Christ's work and glory. And so even death, okay, even death itself has a purpose now to bring us to our Heavenly Father in eternal peace. So now because he lives, right, you don't live as the world. Sin does not have a stronghold on you. You can actually grow into the one who, who you, with whom you will be glorified forever. Anything that is too hard for you and you think, God, how am I going to be faithful to you? This seems too difficult for me. Then think and meditate on the fact that Christ gave his life and then he rose from the dead. The hardest thing has been done. The hardest thing would be you raising yourself from the dead and you cannot do that. And God said, I will accomplish that for you. And now you can live for me. Your father can do all things and he has done it in love for you. So will you repent? Church, will you repent? Just as Jonah called the people to repent, and Jesus brought a message of repentance, will you repent of the ways in which you're living for yourself? Will you repent of the ways in which you are putting your life and your circumstances as the greatest thing in all of history and not the resurrection? Will you actually live as if it's true? Will you teach and model this to your kids? And tell them and show them day by day that there is nothing more important than that Christ is not in the tomb again. So your perspective on every tragedy, every loss, has to be different, right? has to change. If Christ had not raised, we would not have hope. But now everything's different because the grave is empty. No matter what happens, we know that God's purposes will stand. You can rest secure in your Father's powerful arms. Your body may perish one day, but your soul will not if you're in Christ. You, if you are in Christ and you have trusted in him, as you say, you believe that the resurrection is true and that is the only way that you can be once made whole again and be with the Father and receive forgiveness, then you can face tomorrow as you rest in Christ's finished victory. The resurrection is the most important turning event in all of history and now you can love and serve the one who gave everything for you. So church, believe God. Believe the scriptures. Read them. Immerse yourself in them because he is faithful and they're true. Live knowing that you will be raised with him. Christ's resurrection means that you will be raised again and worship him with your life 
whatever comes your way. Let's pray. Most gracious Father, we exalt you as the one that can do all things. Lord, you are the one who deserves all glory. The fact that you rose from the dead show us, shows us your great power and mercy. Father, we thank you for how you've done this for us. Lord, we did not deserve any of it. And Lord, would you help us as we go through our months and our weeks, through our lives, Lord, may this actually impact our lives. Would you help us to not live as if our circumstances are the most important things in our lives, Lord, but as people who have been changed and redeemed and saved, knowing that you, rising from the dead, gives us hope and gives us life. Lord, would you help us? May we love you as we think of this. May we worship you. May we have joy. May we rejoice thinking how important this is, and may we not give anything else the importance that we give you. Help us, Lord, in this, and we praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.